Hello, good people. I'm very happy to be back with you. And today we're going to go into the second part of my video that I did about Laurel's Kitchen, that cookbook that I told you I read something in that had really revolutionized my way of thinking about women and their role in society and their role in the home. Now, I really hate that I have to read an extensive portion of this. It's a little hard to just read through and I'm gonna try and break it up a little bit with some commentary, but I don't have any other way really to share this material with you other than to read it because the book is um, not readily available and um, it's not in an electronic form. So kind of stuck with me doing this. <laughs> I hope it I hope it goes okay and I hope that it's um that it's not too um onerous to listen to me reading a long portion of this book. Okay. So this is the second chapter of the book Laurel's Kitchen and it is called The Keeper of the Keys. And as I had explained in my previous video, the book was a um, a cooperative project of a number of women. These women were under the leadership of a spiritual teacher, Hindu spiritual teacher, and he had actually brought his mother with him from India, and she had some um, she had something to do with their looking at what were the traditional roles of women in the family and in the home. So I'm just going to go ahead and start this chapter. It says we began this book a couple of years ago in a pleasantly desultory manner seeing it as a chance to share our kitchen experience and pass on a solid collection of nutritious, inexpensive vegetarian recipes. The events of the past year though, the growing threat of world famine and the spreading awareness that all natural resources are limited have brought a new sense of urgency to our work. For the rest of this century, the American housewife is in a uniquely important role. As never before, the gift of life is hers to give or withhold. Now, I had mentioned that there was widespread famine at this time and that it was really uh, quite a burden on a lot of people's mind how the resources of the world could better be shared. <coughs> um, and it says, talking about the century that it's talking about here, of course, is the 20th century. But we can say that the situation still prevails that American housewives or American women have a lot to do with how resources are used throughout the planet just because America uses so much of the earth's resources. It goes on. Traditionally the world over, the woman in a house has been known as the keeper of the keys, to hold the keys to the household, to its storerooms, attics, chests, and cupboards, was a position of great responsibility and therefore of great honor. In a season of impoverishment, it was the woman's wise allocation of limited supplies that would see the family through. And in times of plenty, it was her foresight that provided for future needs. Some of us have grandmothers whose linen closets and kitchen pantries stocked with gleaming jellies and pickles mark the last vestiges of this tradition. In just a couple of generations, we seem to have lost sight of this beautiful custom. I don't mean in the strictly private sense. My family isn't suffering for lack of the splendid pile of embroidered linens that dowered grandma. 
The world is suffering, though, for having forgotten the frugal practices, the wise use of resources that the keeper of the keys represented. Now we need to become trustees, not just for our immediate families, but for the entire planet. She goes on, um, the author of this goes on in kind of great length, talking about the world situation at that time. Remember, this is written 1978. And how many, how much of the world world's resources being is being used by the United States? At this point, really, the entire Western world has come much higher in its standard of living over the past generation, and we can say that it's the entire Western world that is also using resources to um, to a profligate um, extent. And then um, she goes on to say, the reason for overconsumption is overconsumers. If the consumer refuses to be manipulated and makes wise choices that are not based on advertising, he, she, we can save the planet. Now I do want to mention here that I am not, um, I'm not particularly concerned in a sense of quote unquote saving the planet. I don't think that that is, um, that that is a great issue. I do think that we have a responsibility to use resources in a wise way. I'm not making this into a, a kind of a, we're gonna save the planet or we're gonna kill the planet if we don't do certain things. But there is a point here that we can say definitely that we have a responsibility and speaking as a Christian, we have a responsibility in terms of how we use resources. And she goes on, for most of us, the moment of truth comes when we first awaken to how our own lives are demeaned by overconsumption. The first glimmering can come in many forms. A week in a village in Mexico, say, or Greece, where needs may be few, the pace slow, and relationships much warmer than those we're used to seeing. So here she begins to hit on how overconsumption affects the sense of community, and she's going to have quite a bit to say about that that I think is important as we read on. It's somehow poignant that we pay such high prices for the hand-carved bowl, the hand-polished silver, the hand-dyed scarf from a village in Peru or Indonesia. We delight in using these very personal objects. We prize them over their mass-produced counterparts, and we cherish even their imperfections. Without denying their beauty, I wonder whether what really draws us is the way of life they suggest, where people meet their needs and just their needs by their own skilled handiwork and by trustful cooperation with their neighbors. In painful contrast, the, quote, high standard of living, unquote, of our own time and place has deprived us of such work and estranged us from our neighbors. We buy our bread, we buy our clothing, we buy our transportation, our entertainment, our artistic satisfactions, and the price of it all is much higher than it appears to be. For just as serious as the cost to world resources is the threat that our lifestyle poses to life itself. Our exploded notions of what is, quote, enough, unquote, conditioned by long exposure to Madison Avenue drive us mercilessly to earn more, spend more, eat, drink, and smoke more at whatever the cost to our health and environment. The diseases most Americans die of as a result, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and emphysema are all but, are all but unknown in some parts of the world. Now, if I bring this up today, I would say 
that we have finally recognized that the smoking part as a society we've become um, quite convinced that smoking is harmful and the smoking issue is not what it was in the 1970s however what is really um, affecting greatly the health of our population is type 2 diabetes and um, Alzheimer's disease, which some people are now calling type 3 diabetes, which means that these are diseases of the overconsumption of carbs and sugars. So um, it's still the point what, that she's making is still valid now, these many years later, that most of the diseases that Americans are dying from are chronic diseases that have their roots in what we consume rather than the infectious diseases that maybe, you know, were the main killers of the population in, say, the early 1900s. And then she goes on to say, the changeover is in our hands. It can only take place if women like us will change our own habits and help family members to change theirs. I say women very stubbornly because we are still the ones who decide how most of the money is spent. More important, by example and instruction, we're the ones who influence coming generations most directly. This is one of the lines in this piece of writing that really struck me many, all this many years ago. Because she said, that women were the ones who decide how most of the money is spent. Now, if you remember, she's writing in 1978, this is the height of the women's movement. And one of the things that was going on was the idea that was being floated out into the society was the idea that women did not have power and they needed to take power. They needed especially to take economic power into their own hands by having jobs outside of the home and earning their own income. Now, what she's saying here is that the economic power is not based so much in what you earn, but in the fact that you have power over the spending, that women have always had the main power over how money is spent, and that's the real economic power. So that led me to being very acutely aware when people would claim that women did not have economic power in the society to realize that that was a lie, that women in the home had still had the bulk of the economic power. So I'll go on um, and I'm gonna skip a little bit here and then say, the first step then is to cultivate a keen eye for the inessential in food, clothing, transportation, appliances, entertainment, and our use of resources of every kind, direct and indirect. There is a deep satisfaction in rousting a supposed need out of its hollowed niche. Now, this is really a spiritual attitude because looking at things and, and making the discernment between what is essential and what is unessential, is really a spiritual task. When people are dissatisfied spiritually, they tend to want to fulfill that, that inner need by getting things externally, especially material goods. 
she goes on to say, when you start thinking in this way, your life can never be quite the same. If we are concerned with wise use of resources, food, for example, this is a cookbook after all, appears in a new light. One of the best arguments for serving whole, fresh, unprocessed foods, like homemade whole grain bread, is that this practice conserves what is most precious in food, its nutritional value. When you refine away nutrients, you have to replace them somehow, and a whole industry springs up to profit. And a whole industry springs up to manufacture vitamin supplements at high cost to you, high profit to them. Processed foods are not just unhealthy, they are wasteful even before you consider the cost in elaborate packaging and competitive advertising. The next inevitable insight is that we women ourselves are a valuable and often misused resource. A sidelong look at my own activities, and I have been forced to ask myself, very tactfully of course, whether part of my time could not be spent in ways that would more directly contribute to solving the world's problems or even my own communities. Planting a garden is one way, teaching a neighbor to make bread is another. Raising money for famine relief, another. Our time, talent, and energy are resources the world needs desperately. Now, some people get upset about that idea. You can remember the video that Jordan Peterson did with the woman who was interviewing him on behalf of GQ magazine. And one of the things that she was objecting to was the idea that women do all of this unpaid labor. This woman is saying the world needs our quote-unquote unpaid labor. Hmm, something to think about. This leads to a troubled and troubling question in some circles, even an explosive one. How is my time best spent? Gardening, cooking with whole fresh food, making our own clothes and upholstering our own couches all require time spent at home to retrench and return to less mechanized and commercialized methods of homemaking may mean I won't have time for a job or golf lessons or a course in silk screening. <laughs> silk screening was all the rage back then in the 1970s. Even if it is necessary for women to make this shift, how palatable would it be? Could I stand it? Could I carry it off without feeling and expressing resentment? I would like to face this question squarely. I want to examine some of the attitudes and assumptions and pressures too that are keeping us from doing it. Let me emphasize that everything I'll be saying is drawn from eight years of shared experience of a group of women who have undertaken these changes in their own lives. Now, this is important. Um, John Verveke has mentioned about the importance of people being in communities, even if they're not in religious communities, in order to provide a sense of solidarity and support for one another, particularly in undertaking any kind of spiritual path or path to try to better their lives. And that's what these women did. And, you know, that's a very precious thing that a lot of us would really like to have around us. We would like to have a group of women around us that we could do this, undertake this kind of thing with. 
and possibly if you're interested in making lifestyle changes along these lines, you want to look at how uh, some kind of community can be built up around that sort of thing. Most women have come to see housework as tedium, a real threat to individual growth. The truly creative and challenging activities, it is generally agreed, lie outside the home. Moreover, staying home is lonely. The isolation is something fierce, and when you come right down to it, there really isn't all that much to do at home. Parkinson's law can stretch the morning cleanup on into the afternoon, but how clean does the house need to be? Housework, as it is generally practiced today, is indeed tedious. Worse, it insults the spirit and wearies us profoundly. But need this be so? Has it always been so? Granted, there are aspects of housework that are monotonous, but this is the case in any job or indeed any creative pursuit. Ask any teacher, artist, or executive. What really troubles us most about housework is that in our desire to be freed from its tedium, we have welcomed a host of time and labor saving devices, which have not only eliminated tedium, but cut us off from the truly pleasurable, creative side of our work. If that were all they did, it would be bad enough. But in addition, they actually lower the quality of our lives by rendering everything we eat, drink, wear, and sit on quite uniform, uninteresting, and even downright harmful. What possible satisfaction can I get from preparing a bag lunch for my little boy if it means slapping together a sandwich from balloon bread and pre-ribboned peanut butter and jelly spread, dropping in a miniature can of fruit cocktail and a bag of potato chips and adding milk money which will end up in the soft drink machine. For that matter, how much satisfaction can child rearing itself offer when our children spend six hours a day with the electronic babysitter? That would be in those days the television and these days probably an iPad or something like that. Worst of all, these labor-saving products and devices represent an enormous sinkhole for the world's diminishing resources. The world cannot afford this version of homemaking. The less than thrilling side of homemaking will always be there. But as soon as we take into our own hands some of the tasks we'd previously consigned to machines and manufacturers, our work becomes vastly more gratifying. Obviously, when you're bored, it's hard to concentrate. Only lately have I been helped to realize I could actually eliminate boredom no matter what I was doing by simply concentrating more. Now, there's kind of a big movement going on with what's called mindfulness, and it's simply the idea that you just pay attention to what you're doing. And this, too, is a spiritual attitude being present to the task at hand. In the old days, cooking dinner was just a matter of getting something onto the table that people would like. A certain listlessness pervaded the whole affair. Now, though, nutrition is as crucial as appetite appeal. I'm interested in what I'm doing, and boredom is quite out of the picture. Anyone who started cooking with Whole Foods knows that the work itself actually is much more engrossing. 
the variety of texture, shape, and color calls out the artist in anyone. I have begun to wonder of late about this belief that housework is essentially tedious. To what extent do you suppose it has been foisted upon us by those very same commercial interests who so obligingly provide us with dishwashers, dehydrated dinners, and disposable diapers, all meant very generously, of course, to relieve us of all that horrible work, obviously an evil in itself. Then she goes on to question whether this might not just be a Madison Avenue tactic to divide and conquer us. And then she says, in this case, it's our consciousness that's being divided into more and more nagging desires so that continually frustrated, we will obediently buy a little more stuff every year. Sit down one afternoon and watch an hour or so of TV commercials or flip through the pages of any woman's magazine. Two images of yourself will flash at you alternately with strobe light rapidity. One moment, you are a loving, devoted wife and mother who wants only the best, best flour and boast paper towels, best frozen tamales for her loved ones. The next moment, or even simultaneously, comes the subtle or blatant suggestion that you're really much too good to be stuck at home. The real thrills in life are out in the world. Life at the office has a certain glamour that your little bungalow is bound to lack. The gist of the typical commercial is, we know you love your family, but let us free you from its drudgery and give you time to pursue a more meaningful existence. The tactic is most insidious for business and industry. This is like another one of the money things in here. For business and industry, the ideal situation is for us to be trying to have a family and a job. For when we do, we spend a lot more money on a lot more things. Now, this was one of the phrases in here that just really got me thinking and kept me conscious for many years when I saw messages directed at women to think, whose benefit is this message for? Who really benefits if women act on this particular message? She goes on, it's not just because we have more money to spend, meaning if you have a job. A working wife and mother needs a second car, dressier clothing, maybe stockings, babysitter, perhaps a cleaning lady. She's pressed for time in the morning and worn out in the evening. So restaurant meals regularly take the place of bag lunches and home-cooked dinners. Prepared, quick-served foods, far more expensive than basic foods, take another bite out of the budget along with a dishwasher, a microwave oven, and ready-made clothing for the children, and in all probability, more money spent on random gifts for them because she feels bad at spending so little time with them. All this on top of the regular operating expenses of the household, and she goes on to say that household is barely the right word by this time because it really doesn't describe anymore what the typical American home is. It's just become a pit stop for people on their way to go somewhere else. And then she says, it is grim indeed to recognize that big business has everything to gain from my inner fragmentation. As I run in several directions at once, 
the sense of incompleteness within can only deeper. The more insecure I am, the more money I spend in the pathetic belief I can purchase security. The spending spree would taper off abruptly if I were to discover within myself the fulfillment I lack. We have been hoodwinked somehow into believing that creativity is in a separate category from the simple acts of daily life. Art is something you do in a craft studio or in a writer's workshop. We dispatch our housework as swiftly as mechanization and frozen dinners will let us so we can hustle off to the Y to get recharged with a few hours of creativity. Why compartmentalize our lives so that art is a thing apart? There is an artistic way to carry out even the simplest task, and there is great fulfillment to be had from finding out that way and perfecting it. That is the silent message that comes to us in the village handicrafts we value so. A culture that gives priority to speed and greed and multiplicity, well, it is no culture. It has no culture. To lead lives of artistry, we have only to slow down, to simplify, to start making wise choices. Certainly for a great number of women, holding a job is not a matter of choice, but for hundreds of thousands of us it is. Confused desire for a higher standard of living or a sense of utter bewilderment at the idea of staying home thrust us willy-nilly onto the job market. I know women who would rather not work, who would be quite happy to simplify their family's material needs and concentrate on the subtler ones, but who are embarrassed to admit it. To my mind, the solution lies in our taking seriously the role of wife, mother, homemaker in a way we are not being encouraged to do. We can talk back firmly to those who would belittle the significance of our work. Better yet, we can demonstrate by quiet personal example that no other job or career involvement can be quite so effective in bringing about the world we all long to see. Idleness is a genuine fear for many of us. A friend, eight months pregnant, mentioned her plan to return to work a month after her baby was born. At my look of dark dismay, she gave a helpless gesture. I know myself well enough to know I would go batty if I stayed home and did nothing. With a new baby, nothing to do? When you have a job, you are spared, by and large, the anxiety of figuring out how to structure your day. More little tasks usually fall across your desk than time to do them in. That's very comfortable. We tend not to trouble ourselves over the ultimate importance of these tasks. It's just a job after all. <coughs> if you dig in your heels at home, though, and refuse this rather easy out, you are truly thrown back on your own inner resources. No small matter considering how little help we've had in developing those inner resources. But if you can hold out and look around you at your home, neighborhood, and community, you will see a host of challenges, very real problems that are crying out for creative attention and hard work to solve. By foregoing the temptation to feather your own nest, you free yourself to tackle them. No paycheck comes at the end of the month and no promotion. The incentive here is much less obvious and much more worthy of you as a human being. 
these thoughts remind me of some things that G.K. Chesterton said, and he was writing, you know, 50 years before she's writing. But he made the comment one time, he said that, um, you know, 10,000 English women had stood up and said, I will not be dictated to and gone off to become stenographers. <laughs> that was um, the early days of the feminist movement, and the idea that women were, um, you know, not fulfilling their potential if they were staying home. And one of the things that G.K. Chesterton said about it was that home was the place of freedom, that a woman at home was freer because she had to structure her own time. And that is the same point that this woman is making out, is making in here, that a woman in the home has the freedom to structure her day in a way that most men in a job or any activity outside the home do not have the freedom to do. And the point G.K. Chesterton made was that women are actually made because of their, the way they're created, that they're made to live in a situation where they have that kind of freedom. Men are too, but men can, can bear that um, lack of that, that freedom of the day easier than a woman can because of a woman's temperament and makeup. So that's something to think about. You can think about whether you agree with that or not. She goes on to say, what about isolation? For many women, a job in an office or store means the relief of human contact and nothing more. They'd work for almost nothing and do. The loneliness of the typical suburban family is profound. No simple problem. It has to do with deep-rooted inadequacies in our present lifestyle and especially with our astonishing mobility. A new home every seven years is the national average make the move or lose the promotion no wonder so little effort is made to meet our neighbors it's much easier just to get a job through constant daily exposure we can get to know our fellow workers very quickly of course they aren't our neighbors or the mothers of our children's friends or the wives of our husband's co-workers but they're better than nothing the pattern that results is well known Strangers to our neighborhood, we have to drive considerable distances to see our friends, and separately, in different directions. The idea of a whole family visiting another whole family seems to have disappeared with bronzed baby shoes. Now, this, this particular thing about the mobility is probably worse now than it was then. Um, a young family moved into my block probably about six years ago. And um, when I first met the young woman, the young mother of that, of that family, she said that the real estate agent had told them that it was a very nice starter home. And I said, no! Don't think of it as a starter home. Stay here and bring up your family here. Look at that big backyard you have. Our, our houses on this block have nearly an acre of land. I said, you know, if you need a bigger place, you can always add on. But stay in this neighborhood. Don't move away. Don't think of this as a starter home. Try to see if you can make this your permanent home. This is a terrible attitude that people have about constantly moving and trying to 
trade up their house and everything and just stay in debt and never even pay a house off. I'll go on and read. This state of affairs is a clear threat to any kind of warmth or interdependence on the family or community level. We only prolong it when we knuckle under. The real cure for loneliness is not to gloam onto other folks just for the sake of gloaming as we do in so many of our pursuits. Instead, suppose we were to commit ourselves to building up a neighborhood where we live, a kind of village where lives overlap and intermingle in a rich and productive way. What greater challenge to our creativity? Loneliness comes whenever we dwell on ourselves and it leaves immediately once we start working for the welfare of others, beginning with those immediately around us. Saint Augustine said that because we could not do good to everyone, that um, our obligation to do good was directly uh, proportional to how close people were to us, that we should always be starting with the people that were closer to, closest to us. A neighborhood that meets its needs cooperatively takes a much smaller bite out of world resources. Carpools form naturally. A communal garden springs up. Joint wholesale food purchasing comes easy. Families may even find they can live under one roof. Or one lawnmower, one rototiller, one sailboat does for a whole block. The barter system can flourish. Fresh baked muffins for minor car repairs, knitting lessons from the elderly lady down the block in exchange for a lift to the grocery store. Outgrown clothing gets passed around among the children until it's threadbare. And gradually in the evening, people can even be seen out of doors visiting with one another. Judging from our experience, women are the people who can best accomplish these changes by bringing warmth, self-sufficiency, and interdependence to our homes and communities. I'm not insisting women should not take jobs, neither am I. The nurturing impulse, the eye for the good of all, may have its most obvious place in a domestic setting, but it is a blessing to hospitals, offices, and classrooms as well. No, I would never go on record as saying a woman's place is in the home. But to my mind, the most effective front for social change, the critical point where our efforts will count the most, is not in business or professions, which tackle life's problems from above, from outside but in the home and community where the problems start. Any woman about to take a job should think carefully about the pressures compelling her choice and decide which are legitimate and which questionable. She should consider what her home and family and neighborhood stand to lose, and she should never underestimate her own worth. So these were words that had a great impact on me and how I felt about being a wife and a mother. And I did not have good circumstances. I did not have, um, I did not have much in the way of resources myself. But one thing that these words did do for me was keep me from that siren song that the feminists were um, saying about women not having power the home not being a place of oppression, etc. It helped me to understand that the home was a place of creativity and freedom, and that a woman's place in the home was one that was very honorable and very important. 
And so I hope that these words are some kind of either maybe a balm to your soul or perhaps maybe a start to questioning some of the messages that we get from the media that maybe they paint a picture of femininity maybe they paint a picture of a woman's rule maybe they paint a picture of women's friendships and women uh, women's cooperation that becomes something that you might want to achieve you can let me know in the comment section what you think about that now i am going to get back into joseph ratzinger's book in my next video and in um the next week or so i'm going to do one more video that has to do with these things about women and that's going to be explaining from a catholic perspective what we say about the vocation of women and um, i hope that you'll be with me for that so please like the video subscribe to my channel and um and i'll see you back soon in the meantime treat yourself as though you are someone you are responsible for helping because you are responsible so am i and together we are making the world bye for now thanks for watching